This week, our feature interview is with Leonard Rose, who currently today is a principal security architect uh, at a large provider and has quite the history uh, in computer hacking and beyond to talk about that and uh, all things Internet and Unix uh, and security related. After that, we're going to do the stories for this week. We've got some WebEx vulnerabilities. I feel like I read stories this week and had deja vu from time. Like, I feel like Volkswagen has been hacked before, and I feel like medical devices have been vulnerable before. Uh, and there was one other one that just kind of, I was like, I think I've seen this before. Uh, so we'll have a lot of, you think you've seen it before stories in our security news this week. So stay tuned for this episode of Ball Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady, it's Paul's Security Weekly. Welcome. Does Larry have an introduction? Hi, everyone. This is Paul Asador, and I guess I'm, I'm introducing... Uh, apparently, I no longer do. Okay. <laughs> wow, and I look short. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I accidentally uh, landed in New England and uh, stumbled my way to the G-Unit studio. That's pretty much how I envisioned it happening. Yeah. Job. <laughs> Carlos, save the show, please. <laughs> yes, somebody's got to do it. It cannot be saved. Uh, well, it's good to have you back, Carlos. Jeff, welcome. Nice to have you in studio. It's great to be here, Paul. Try to stay awake for the whole episode. <laughs> yes. In studio, dropping his We're phone incessantly. Welcome, Jeff. What? We're... Oh, hey, I'm, I'm in the studio with you guys. That's kind of cool. Um, <laughs> NetSparker, the developers of desktop and cloud-based web application security scanners that enable you to automatically identify vulnerabilities in your web applications and web services. NetSparker scanners employ a unique and dead-accurate vulnerability scanning engine that automatically verifies vulnerabilities with their proof of concept. For more information, visit them on the web at netsparker.com or email at contact at netsparker.com. In 2017, an increasing number of companies reported they did not have effective insider threat detection methods. Logarithm's UEBA solutions enable you to detect and neutralize user-based threats in real time, while built-in scenario and behavior-based analytics empower you to expose insider threats, compromised accounts, and privilege misuse. Visit Logarithm.com to learn how their UEBA solutions can help you expand visibility and enhance detection capabilities. And welcome to the show. But first, let me introduce you to a man who makes the cars go woo-woo, Bob Rub. I mean, Paul Asadori. <laughs> welcome, everyone, to Paul Security Weekly. It's wonderful to be here this evening. We've got a fantastic show. We've got lots of co-hosts to introduce, which is great. So I will start with the illustrious Larry Pesce yeah. to my left. Yeah. What's going on, dude? It's good stuff. Good stuff. A little fun in the studio here after after the show last week with some of the production <laughs> staff. <laughs> yeah, John almost died. Uh, one <laughs> of did. our production he staff did. members. Yeah, I uh, watched the recording and I was like, "Wow, he he pretty much almost died." Uh, yeah, so it was awesome. Don't don't kill the staff here, oh, please. Uh, <laughs> it was all their own accord. <laughs> <laughs> it was Not completely good. voluntary. <laughs> <laughs> on the lines uh, via Skype, Jason Wood is with us. Welcome, Jason. Hey, Paul. Good to be back. Joining us from the massage parlor, as usual. Right. Uh, <laughs> Carlos Perez is here with us. Carlos, welcome. Hey, Paul. Happy to be here. Now, Carlos, you've recently had uh, a, a change uh, in your career that I believe you can talk about now. 
Yes, I can talk about it now. I'm actually uh, team lead for research at TrustedSec. It's awesome. Nice. Congratulations. Yay. Thank you. I, I spoke with your boss today. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody talks with my boss. Right? <laughs> that must be yeah. weird, right? I, I don't, Carlos, I don't yeah. talk with your boss. Oh, you should call that's, that's Dave. True. I know that's I should. Call him more often, Larry. No. Come on now. I'm yeah, every time I'm, I'm sitting in front of him in person, I think he's taking about four to five calls per hour. So yeah, that's normal. Yeah, he's a busy guy. Uh, so <laughs> let's see. <clears throat> Going from left to right on my screen, not Kevin is here with us uh, in front of the world's tallest window. In fact, for those that are, are wondering, and the world's largest <laughs> mute button apparently as well. It's Hello, true. I'm not Windows Kevin. And mute it's lovely to really be here. Thing here. Oh, yeah, well, I love you again, guys, everybody. Like, you're so awesome. Are you alright, Joff? Joff is providing bad lip reading service. Ah, okay. Thanks, Joff. <laughs> so, not, not Kevin, are, are you, can you talk about where, where you work and what you do, or you prefer not to say? It's up to you. That, that is true. I have also made uh, a little bit of jump for, for those keeping score at home. I was previously at Pony Express, but I'm now with a new company called Barkley. Uh, I'm one of their senior security engineers here. It's awesome. That's awesome. So I've, you, I've gotten to know your company a little bit, uh, the company you work for, uh, not Kevin. And uh, I, I really, I like what I see, and I like the people there too. So well, I, mean, I can as, see why it, you chose it, that as a, a new home. As the owner of Four Dogs. likes I, the pet food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's Sorry. not. Sorry. It's not pet food. It's definitely endpoint security. I'll use that as a blanket term. You can feel free to correct me, not Kevin. I would put it in the overarching category of uh, endpoint security. You're 100% correct, and many people have also made Larry's mistake of uh, hitting us up for, for dog walking services. So that's always a funny email to answer. That's awesome. Mr. Joff Fire is here with us. Joff, welcome to the program. That would be me. Uh, it is good to be back again. Uh, I've been around the world a few times in various places, but I'm here in the flesh, and my office keeps filling up with boxes. I don't know what that is. Yeah, it's anyway. always interesting. I talked with your boss yesterday, by the way. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, that's good. I never talk to him, so I, I, I count yourself well, lucky. You know, when we talk, we talk and we do Enterprise Security Weekly. That's like the only time during the, you know, during the week we have uh, a chance to chat. So, um Let's see. I would like to make an announcement. I guess I just did. But uh, please visit our fine friends at itpro.tv, itpro.tv forward slash security weekly. You can check out a really cool interview that Jeff Mann and I did with Adam Gordon from itpro.tv on Enterprise Security Weekly on penetration testing. That was a lot of fun. And we're going to talk more about penetration testing because we just can't talk enough about pen testing. Not necessarily in the next interview, though, who uh, has joined us is Mr. Leonard Rose. Leonard is a, a fellow hacker and Unix geek who in 1991 was convicted of wire fraud. Once believed to be associated with the hacking group Legion of Doom, which he was not, and we'll expound upon that, Leonard, uh, then went on to become uh, the founder of the Full Disclosure Mailing List uh, uh -huh. and holds a, pos a position today as a principal security architect. Leonard, welcome to the program. Hi, Paul. Hi, gentlemen. So, Leonard, how did you get your start in, in well, really, technology and information uh, security? I just sort of... <clears throat> Absorbed it and, and helped become part of that that group that created it all. I, I'm kind of a prototype uh, hacker. Uh, basically, I've been using Unix since about 1976. Wow. Um, I had accounts on the ARPANET, the original ARPANET, with uh, you know 
the lease line 56k serial network the original one and uh i had guest accounts on nasa uh servers at the time too because uh there there was a, a lot of really great people at nasa out at ames that time and they just sort of let me stay there as long as i promised not to do anything bad so it was a great time to be around that's amazing. I, I do want to get to what you've seen change, especially in uh, in Unix and and then Linux. Uh, since then, I think you know, uh, using Unix as long as as you have is pretty. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty cool. Definitely want to tap into that. Um, so uh, you know, uh, it, uh, tell us about first of all uh, the events in 1991. Like, how did you get involved in you know writing articles for Frack, and, and eventually led you to to write that article in in Frack? Oh, I knew Craig and and. And, you know, I, I basically, he asked me to write an article and uh, I was just casting around for what to write. And I'd recently uh, written some code. I was working as a consultant at the time for the Swiss bank. And I'd re- recently written some code to collect uh, logins and passwords that people were attempting to break into the bank systems using, you know, the, coming in through the terminal servers. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took the same exact code and I wrote it and I changed the comments in the C source uh, to make it more, you know, hackerish, more, more, uh, more like you know, it was trendy hacker speak. And the next thing I know, uh, anyway, I sent it to Craig for for publishing in Frack, and he he deleted the um, my original mail and he asked me to resend it, so I sent another copy. And that's how I got two counts of wire fraud because I, uh-huh. I sent e- email to Frack publishers twice um, over interstate lines because I was in Maryland and, and they were, in, of course, at the, at the University of Columbia at Missouri. University. So it was, it was really stupid. And, 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 you know, I was, there was a lot of us who were using, at the time we were using AT&T, 3B2 systems um, as, as our personal Unix machines. And so there was a click of us, you know, like Charlie Boykin at Killer, one of the original UUCP sites. And uh, we just kind of like, you know, it just sort of spread around the source code because, you know, for Unix. And, and it became a, a major contention, of course, later with AT&T. And, uh, but, you know, th- th- this was the source that you could, if you were enrolled in, in like an electrical um, engineering course or a you know computer science course that they would give you a full you know tape of of the Unix source code. So they were giving it out in, in colleges. So I didn't really think it was that proprietary. Right. And you know, so anyway, it was a twenty line twenty one line excerpt of login.c, and that was the the beginning of my saga as an enemy of the state. <laughs> so what, <laughs> oh what happened? Did it, at the time, I mean, there was no like Google or anything, right? Like someone had identified that as source code and, and reported to AT and T. Is that is that what followed after the publication? Well, no, I don't know. It was just they were already investigating something going on with Killer and Charlie Boykin and a bunch of others, uh, basically the the LOD kids. Um, you know. I, there were headlines in the Washington Post that, that calling me the master mind of the Legion of Doom, and I, I was not, you know, they used to call me up late at night. Um, I tend, tend, at that time, I used to work pretty late at night, and um, and and box me in using, you know, you know their um, their Apple Cat modems that were running, you know, 
synthesizers that that could let them box around. So they were boxing and boxing, and uh, yeah, you know, I and and when they, I had like, I guess it was about thirty Secret Service agents in my house in Maryland, and I remember that the image that sticks in my mind is. Uh, these agents with, you know, machine guns pointing them at my wife and children in my living room and then being thrown up against the wall with a 9mm in the back of my head. And and all because I, you know, basically published an article. So 21 lines of right. login.c. Yeah. And now, Steve now Jackson was, games, remember, they were rated. So it was, a part, it was all part of Operation Sun Devil. Um, Bruce... Bruce Sterling, a well-known science fiction author, wrote a book um, called The Hacker Crackdown. It's in the public domain now, yep. so you can read all about it. But even he didn't understand it because he ended up calling me like a wares dude, which really pissed me off at the time. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> he, would, he wouldn't change his assessment, so I'm, I was labeled in the book as a wares dude. And but, do you uh, think that your uh, – how did they uh, potentially or uh, accuse you of being linked to the Legion of Doom? Like what was the, the, the connection there? Well, it was because I published the article for Frack and, and Night Lightning and these guys were part of the Legion of Doom. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so that was my connection. What was the – I mean, for those that are listening, Leonard, it may not – you know, may have heard about the Legion of Doom or maybe not. Like could you give us a Probably description? Not. <laughs> I don't really, you know, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't, I was ahead of all the groups. I, I wasn't part of any group. I wasn't a joiner. I, I, I had a full-time job working, you know, um, all the time. So uh, they were a group of kids, I guess. They were just, you know, learning things and teaching themselves. And they happened to, to do a few interesting things here and there. And um, they were definitely, you know, quite skilled and were learning quickly. So, you know, they were great. Leonard, um, who helped you during your time? I mean, obviously you were, uh, you know, talk about your, your home being raided and, you know, uh, eventual arrest. Who helped you the most throughout that process? There was a huge effort, actually, on my behalf. And, and I so many people um, a debt of gratitude that, for one, like John Perry Barlow, um, he, he was instrumental in helping me, and so was Mitch Kapoor and, and, uh, and John Gilmore, if you know Unix people will recognize the, his name, of course, and you know there was Waz and, and, and Jobs too. They contributed. So uh, I had six attorneys at one point. They spent about a million dollars on my defense. And but you know, one of my attorneys said that you know actually the indictment began with five counts, and it was it wasn't just writing um, an article for FRAC. I had a, written a brute, brute force password cracking program, you know, to to you know, dictionary attack against uh, deaths, you know, encryption. And, it, you know, they, they compared that to burglary tools. So, and then as they, when they seized all my equipment and my servers, the Secret Service agents taught themselves Unix using all my equipment. <laughs> and oh. they, kept, they kept it for about a year or so. Wow. And so, but anyway, they, uh, by the time it, I, I knew it, it had grown to a 15-count indictment. And it was like for everything from writing code to possessing code. It was like, you know, um, they didn't, you know. And I, my, one of my attorneys, she was a very nice lady. Um, she told me in private because the other team members would have, would have, you know, probably thrown her off. But she said, you, you really need to take a plea bargain because um, one of the charges are going to stick. And each charge could 
gets you in, you know, up to about 45 years. This was after Robert Morris. So mm-hmm. anyway, to get to get to your original question, it was I'm the reason. My case was the reason why the Electronic Frontier Foundation was created, and uh, I was you know swept up after Robert Morris, the worm, and I guess they were looking to make an example of us. And then I fought back in the press, which was a major mistake. And you know, I was I was I was using words like brown shirts and Nazis and things like that, and they didn't like that. So, so they. Uh, I remember I had a cast up to my hip, and I hadn't been able to walk for a year. And I remember being carried in on a stretcher into the jail in Naperville, Illinois, because. I, I had a contract at Bell Labs at the time, and they arrested me and brought me into jail, and they carried me into jail. It was pretty funny. So, um, but Mitch Kapoor and, and and you know John Gilmer and John Perry Barlow, who you know God rest his soul, and he's dead now. And uh, and so you know and those so guys are great. Did you um, were you able to use computers? You know, after your conviction, like what 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 happened uh, shortly after that? before you like, well, went one back the, to work? One of the pressure points they put on me was they barred me from touching a computer under any circumstances. And so I was basically unable to, to, to earn any money uh, during the time that I was, it was pre-trial supervision. And, and so one of the conditions of the plea bargain was that they not place that restriction on me. Mm-hmm. So um, that was, I was grateful for that. So I was able to work, you know, with computers right away and, uh, I think that after I moved to uh, Silicon Valley, um, basically uh, the probation officer was really nice. And, and he was kind of, you know, the, the government had a lot of conditions for me. But, uh, you know, I was only sentenced. Originally they tried to get me sentenced for one year, which meant I would have had to spend every day in prison. And so we fought very hard to get an extra day. So I was sentenced to a year and a day. And I got out after eight and a half months. And then I was in a halfway house in Chicago because that's where I was at the time that they, they you know, en- enrolled me into the federal prisoner um, ranks. You know, I'm a convicted felon now. So and, uh, and but you, my life is different. <laughs> wait, and, and despite that, you've uh, had what I would term as a really awesome career. So like, what was your first, uh, you know, foray back into having a, a career in, in computers? Well, um, it was working for a company uh, run by a guy named Norman Gillespie, who was right across from the Sun Building in Palo Alto. And um, I created the first internet to satellite uplink. Um, I had Sun uh, 4280s running with large serial boards and these big VME bus based um, original Sun 68K based Unix, you know, the original Sun OS, the 4.x series. And uh, so I basically was running Usenet over um, over satellites. We had an uplink in, in Palo Alto where, uh, you know, we were basically using modified fax modems, and it was part of Norman's paging system. And so we were distributing Usenet over satellite. Um, mm. I know that TBS tried to do it on a subcarrier, but we actually did it for real, and we did it with uh, standalone modem systems and, and like, 0.9-meter um, dishes. And it was really great. Uh, so it was uh, running about 4,800 baud, and um, it was great. It was almost it was almost as good as a real internet connection. Um, so that was my first uh, first gig after prison. Um, uh, I want to turn over to the panel. I think I, I heard someone earlier wanting to pipe in with a question uh, for Leonard. 
at this juncture? I didn't or have one. Just I, I'm, I'm just happened to be just in awe of one of the, the you know the the folks that really sort of made some of our industry happen, and you know some of the the counterculture you know magazines and stuff that I've been reading for years. So I'm just yeah. <laughs> just just happy to to have the opportunity to to listen to the stories that yeah. that, that maybe we wouldn't normally get to hear. So as we take a breath, uh, I have to ask: Is it VI or is it Emacs? Oh, it's definitely VI. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I knew I liked it. <laughs> Emacs turned into an operating system. <laughs> no. No. There you go. I'm look, sorry. Look, uh, I'm Leonard, old school, Leonard's, okay? Um, I can even use I, I, ED. I, I, I was thinking that your answer was going to be uh, it's ED or it's, um, or it's SED, said, right? Um, because... I don't remember. I, well, I forgot how many times I I had was in a situation where I had to use ED to actually rescue myself from a boot uh, boot situation that had gone south. So, uh, right. I've and, and and also trying to get the regex perfectly correct. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Now, now I might argue the modern equivalent of that comment is uh, latex or markdown. <laughs> right. Oh, it's gonna be latex. Sorry. Ooh. Now you you mentioned that the FBI used your computers to for them to Actually, run themselves. Actually, Secret Service. Did they left anything in, on on those computers? Actually, it was the Secret Service. At the time, there was a turf war between the mm. FBI and this and the Secret Service as to who would handle computer crime. So, I was in the middle of their tug of war. Um, the question was, did they leave anything on the systems? Actually. No. Um, they they did because I, I had legitimate you know licenses for my operating systems and everything, and uh, they they didn't give me back any of the source code that they seized from me. Um, I had source code for like you know SunOS and I had source code for uh, for every variant of AT and T System Five like two point X to three point you know actually to three point nine or so. Uh, and, and source code for such elite things as Honey Dammer UCP, which Peter Honeyman is a friend of mine. So, mm. <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, they a lot of it was ripped off. A lot of stuff was missing, and and I, I really didn't care because by the time I got it back, it was obsolete, and I was already using something better. <laughs> <laughs> so, but they, you know, I I don't want to say the gentleman's name because he was like the lead agent that 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 time that they raided me and and. I remember, you know, being, you know how the, the scene from The Matrix where Agent Smith is being interrogated in that room? Mm -hmm. How can you talk without if you don't have any mouth? Exactly. <laughs> so it was just like that. Only they didn't morph into, like, you know, um, um, virtual reality characters. Mm. They, I remember they slapped the handcuffs on me in that room because they had, uh, I was trying to, I remember I was trying to help a friend who was um, possibly swept up in this and, it turned out that he was like the informer. So I, I went to a phone booth just after they read the next day after they read me, I went to a phone booth to try to warn him. And they, so they, they, they had the whole thing recorded. And, uh, so they invited me down to surrender my passport. And then in that room, they slapped the cuss on me and threw me in, um, and, and, you know, the jail cell in the courthouse where this, the secret service hangs out, you know, but, uh, yeah, it was an interesting time. And, you know, I got through it thanks to the EFF. And, you know, I really I really believe that those folks saved my life. So, um, And later in your career, 
uh, Leonard, where are some of the areas you focused? And I think uh, surprisingly, some of those weren't security related. Actually, right. I, I never had a real security role, I think, until 2013. I, uh, I'd just been doing systems engineering and a lot of, I had a lot of titles like VP of R&D and, uh, and director of this and that and, and lofty titles during the dot-com era. And, uh, but basically that, you know, just meant that was just another hat that I had besides sweeping up the floors. Um, I, I, I like to build things from that didn't exist before, so I'm really good at creating um, infrastructure that just, you know, out of nothing. So, um, and, and so I, I've been working with Unix and, and networking and internetworking and routing and, and just about everything I could, including kernel hacking, you know, which um, I do a lot of uh, hardware development and a lot of embedded work too. So um, I'm kind of an engineer. So uh, I, uh, I just didn't really feel after what happened to me that I should even work in a security role. But you know, and I know, if you're good with Unix, you're automatically a good security person. <laughs> it's true. So, it's true. So I, I, you know, all my fellow Unix people, you know, whether it's Linux or Unix or FreeBSD, I don't care what variant because I love them all. Um, you know, and, and I think that uh, you're automatically very good with internet working and you're also very good at interoperating with other, other operating systems and you understand, you know, what, what packets are doing. If it's, you know, if it's a TCP, you could probably name most of the, uh, you know, the communication phases of a TCP connection, that sort of thing where, and, and you could also write in Perl or awk or sed or, or Python, hopefully now. Um, because Python's all the rage, and so uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's just a matter of like anyone who's good with Unix, I would automatically hire as a security person. Mm -hmm. And if they actually weren't good with Unix, then you'd find out quickly. Right, right. So, oh yeah. So Leonard, so, what what advice do you have for those that want to get uh, into information security today? Where should they, how should they learn? Where should they learn? Uh, well, basically, you should just grab, a, grab up as much hardware as you can get and, and load, you know, every operating system and study it closely and, and understand, you know, set up little laboratories, you know, like um, just, just teach yourself, basically. And whenever you're stuck, you know, just go ask for help from somebody who knows more than you. And, you know, obviously with the net, you know, that's that's the whole world. So mm -hmm. um, we, we all, all do that. And so... Um, you know, I've been working in ISPs most of my life. Actually, you know, I worked for Barnet, which is one of the original five National Science Foundation providers in the world. And uh, and so, you know, we were bought by BBN. So unlike Al Gore, I can actually say I helped, you know, build the internet. So. <laughs> Because <laughs> I did. And at Barnet, you know, I worked with some really great people. You know, I, where I work now, it's almost as good. But back to Barnet, um, like Vince Fuller, who basically invented cider. Um, and, you know, Kathy, um, she, she, she's divorced now, so she doesn't like to use her original name. But at the time, Kathy Whitbrot. And, and there, was a, there were a few people. This was back when, then, when they commercialized the National Science Foundation Network. And then so all the regional providers like NearNet, you know, you're, you're from Rhode Island, so mm -hmm. probably you recognize mm -hmm. the old acronym NearNet. Um, they BBN bought up all those guys and and, uh, and Barnett and and let's see who else they bought. They bought uh, one in the Mid Atlantic, uh, 
that was out of University of Maryland. I just can't remember the name. But we, we sort of all, they glommed this together and we, we became like one of the first commercial providers. And uh, so after that, I, I was like, uh, I worked for, I guess I worked for the original version of Facebook. I worked for theglobe.com. Um, our co hey, we had co CEOs and they wore leather pants and danced on tables in, in Manhattan. <laughs> and it was, that's where, that's where the 20 million went, I swear. Yeah. Actually, it was more like 100 million by the time we closed shop. But I, I was the last one standing. You know, I was, I was, I, I, I moved all their sites and, and servers into my basement. I had a fiber optic connection in New Jersey, and I, you know, I ran them out of my basement for a couple of years. And, and you know, what was left of the Globe.com, which was uh, quite an amazing story, but uh, almost beat uh, Skype to market. And a company called Voice Glow. Um, oh, yeah, the last two job titles were chief scientists. But, uh, you know. What, what did you do as I, a chief scientist, Leonard? I designed a lot of um, really big, large-scale infrastructure that could handle, you know, um, terabits of uh, activity. Um, <laughs> and, and I also helped, you know, build all the Unix servers. I was the one that loaded all the operating systems. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I had back then, you know, everybody had lofty titles, but the company had just gone public and, you know, they had a hundred million and I never saw money disappear so fast in my life, actually. <laughs> it was amazing. So I used to, I worked from home and I came in once a week for staff meetings and uh, it was a trip. Um, I think everybody in the room made, you know, more than I did and I was making close to 200K. Wow. So, yeah, so the, the, the that night. was in 1999, though. Wow. Yeah, so you know where the money is went now. Salary. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're all the great people, but uh, yeah, you're right. It did go. So, Leonard, of, of all the things that you've built, what what are you most proud of? Oh, that would be my current gig. I've taken a, a large, you know, company with 28,000 to 30K servers and, and changed their security stance from from – um, reactive to proactive. Um, I'm the one that actually coined the phrase secure by default and uh, several years ago. And, and I've been working at a campaign at my company that uh, everything I do, I, I, you know, I always end, end the uh, document or whatever by pointing out that this will further my, our goal of being secure by default. And so uh, I've taken, you know, I've cleaned up a company that didn't, I couldn't really. I shouldn't really say that they didn't care about security, but it, they weren't, you know, doing a, as good a job as they could have. And so I feel very proud of that. And even though I'm not the um, the security lead at the company anymore, um, I still feel that uh, I've contributed. Leonard, That's awesome. What um, in your role today? What what tools and techniques uh, or even processes help you the most in? Uh, what is a very challenging job of, of securing the infrastructure that you're responsible for today. Imagine, you know, 30,000 network devices, you know, really, really massive equipment. And then basically 28 to 30,000 servers behind that. So it, it's been quite incredible. I, I, I'm really proud of something I'm doing, and I'm still, it's an ongoing work here, is implementing OSSEC on every single server and uh, the OSSEC agent. OSSEC is really great. And mm. the, the active response capabilities allow me to, to basically write 
rules that can almost handle any situation. And it lets me, uh, basically I'm getting to the point now where if you, if you play with my network, um, 30,000 computers are going to hit you with a 256K ICMP packet. <laughs> and and it, it, it's so fun to control so many computers. And, you know, I've always had this, this fantasy, the geek fantasy of installing open MPI on like 30,000 computers. <laughs> you know, that would be, that would be my ultimate, you know, thing, but I can do that with OSIC because it's just as good. You know, you write a script to basically, you know, execute an active response event and, and any, you know, because OSSEC agent runs as root, you can do anything from, from the machine that you're using as your robotic endpoint. And so we have, we have our own backbone. My company is really unique in, in the CDM business. And, you know, I guess if you don't mind, I'm going to plug my company sure, a bit. But we're, we're kicking Akamai's ass, okay? And, and, and we're, the, we're the best in the CDM business. And so, um, you know, the entire... The technical staff that I worked with are among some of the best that I've ever worked with. And I've been in this business since at least, you know, professionally, at least since the late 70s. So I, I just know that uh, it's a great group of people. So we, we – um, that's my, that would be my fun fantasy. And, you know, the hackback rules that the government's passing, if you hack me on a network, I get to, to, to mess you up. So, so I like that, but you know, I'm very concerned about what's going on with the net today. Though I, I'm, I'm, I'm very worried because ever since I can, you know, and IANA transitioned, you know, things are kind of getting weird because we're about we might lose the entire who is network or you know infrastructure in the internet because of the the EU's GDPR, yeah. mm-hmm. you know. And that's really concerning me because I rely on who is, you know, not just as a security person, but as an internet service provider, we need who is because, you know, we, we, we are routing people, our network engineering team use it daily, you know, and, and, and so I just don't know, you know, if the EU needs to come to an agreement because if we lose the ability to look up things at RIPE, for instance, you know, and, and, the registrars for the various TLDs in, in, in the EU and, and the EU itself, of course, that would be a disaster. And uh, so that's my current, current you know, Leonard, rant, you, rant about this. Do you think in the, in the search for increased privacy that we as a society as a whole haven't really considered what some of the negative effects uh, of that are? And I think that the developments of, you know, certainly the Tor uh, and uh, blockchain have fed into that as well. Tor, don't get me started. It's a Trojan horse. Okay, just don't use it. You know, it's it's just it, it, it's fine if you're working for the their team, but if you're not working for their team, don't use it. And you know, I, I'm going to say their team because you know I'm sure it's really good, good to our intelligence um, organizations. But you know, I I just you know I'm an enemy of the state. And I really am. I'm still undergoing a lot of trouble from what happened, and and I'll never be clear of it. And so I, I just know that um, from what I've seen in the last three or four years, you know, I just know that there's really little hope for this, this republic. And the, the Bill of Rights has been destroyed. And uh, all you have to do is, you know, we just have to stand up. And all it takes for evil to, to exist is, is for, you know, the, the one good person to do nothing. And so we all have to 
you know, basically try to help restore the Bill of Rights. Um, I didn't mean to go into that. But, no, that's okay, uh, Leonard. So, here, here. Um, I'm a libertarian now. So, <laughs> so, so Leonard, uh, what, All what, my other, what other suggestions uh, did you have? We were speaking about this, uh, you know, pre-interview about, you know, usage right. of the internet. And certainly we've received some, some feedback and talked about, how while there is a concern about the government you know having control or not uh over the internet or what we publish of course but also the larger internet providers or some of what scare me more google facebook twitter in being the main large mechanisms to send messages out to the world that they have somewhat of a say as to what content can be published and what can't it's terrible um they've they've exercised far too much um control over over people i remember somebody being like a computer scientist somehow he was a math mathematician somehow it was was basically they shut down the sites and they they never really could figure out what it was because it was all just formula and and and, and it took him a long time to get google to restore his access yep and he lost his entire existence mm-hmm. and and that's why you know i i can't help but but recommend against using Google. Our company switched to Google, and, and I'm not very happy about it, but, you know, I can understand the need to outsource, you know, a large NASDAQ-listed company's services sometimes. Our IT people, we have uh, quite a few, and, they're, um, and, and, you know, they don't have to deal with the day-to-day support issues as they right. used to. So I can see the efficiencies of scale. But, but you know, I wanted to talk about – you brought up the issue. I, I spoke about it earlier today when we, we, we were talking, and I, I'm very concerned about the militarization of the Internet. I don't see anyone speaking about this, but, but when do we allow them to use the Internet as a battleground? You know, the Internet – there should be an international body with with actual, you know, ability to enforce things. Like we're going to remove you from the root if if your country attacks another country through the net. You know, I don't care if it's China, if it's Russia, if it's Israel, or if it's the United States. Get your military nonsense off the net because you you don't have a right to to destroy you know a country's access to the internet because people depend on that information when when we were building the internet you know the last thing in our mind was that the military would be able to control the internet and you know i i don't care if they consider it a national you know a resource that pertains to you know our national security um because you know, if 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 no one misused the internet for this purpose, then we wouldn't have trouble, and you wouldn't need to defend the internet. And and they already had Milnet and, and the equivalent around the world. You know, all the military you know governments have their I mean military organizations have their own private secure networks. It's like you know, just I, I'm I'm sorry, but I feel very strongly about this because if if I can't you know get to a, my, a server that might be in the Crimea because they've shut down the country's internet, I don't think they should be allowed to do that. And, and you know, it's, they're latecomers anyway, okay? Just because they funded, you know, ARPANET doesn't mean that they own it. Mm. Um, and, 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 you know, we've gone so far beyond the ARPANET anyway because um, it was very, you know, very crude and it wasn't really meant for uh, what we're doing with the net today. <laughs> I mean, we weren't supposed to be transferring video and all this binary stuff. It was really... We were, we were very against binary stuff, so it's just a matter of time. But that's those are the that's my concern today is really the militarization of the net, and 
Um, and I think that we all need to take action, no matter where we we are around the world. Um, if you believe in the internet, you know, the internet becoming the future, which it has become the future, as far as I'm concerned. And and younger people today are probably still, you know, thinking of an even, you know, more, you know, incredible uses of the net than than we did. And you know, I, I have a question about open source. Um, you know, specifically having been around a lot of closed source systems, a lot of open source systems, how have you seen open source change, you know, over time from the, the late 70s on to today? And you're probably as shocked as I am and others are that, oh, my God, like Microsoft's running Linux in their cloud and people are talking Finally. about open source. Like, <laughs> Finally, yeah. Thing, right? That was, that was yeah. Steve Ballmer, right? That was Steve Ballmer. Mm -hmm. he, he's the Linux evangelist now. Mm. God bless him. He should have done that 20 years ago. Yeah, so how have you seen open source change, you know, over the past, uh, you know, 30 plus years? I think it's truly incredible. I think that they've that we've gone from like, you know, 30 or 40 line things posted to, to Usenet and, and, you know, in ASCII text to to GitHub and, and, and you know, all the other, the Docker and, and all the other technologies that, that that people are using for building blocks to create just incredible, you know, infrastructure. And I think that the open source community, you know, it's it's everything we dreamed of. And we we have a lot of, you know, we, we have to owe, you know, we owe Linus a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of um, credit, you know, for this. But it wasn't just Linus, you know. Um, does anybody remember Minix? Yep. Mm-hmm. That's Andy Tannenbaum is the real, real person we should thank, you know, more than just, you know, and, and he got it started. And I'm sure Linus, you know, I'm not sure. I don't, I, I don't really follow Linus. I'm not into the cult worship thing, but um, I, I do know that uh, I think that, you know, Andy Tannenbaum deserves a lot of credit. And, but, but back to your, the book, the central point of your question. I mean, look at, um, the projects that we have available, not, not just including the, the different variants of Linux and FreeBSD and BSD, but uh, like OpenBSD, and, and, and I really like OpenBSD, but, um, you know, I, I think Theo is a little bit, you know, hmm. out there for me, though. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I know a lot of these guys, and, you know, I, I think that um, I'm very, very happy that uh, – it's branched into like I worked in an early mail program called Elm, mm -hmm. and um, it, it, it's a very old right a mail client, and so and I just worked a little bit on it and just helped out a little bit. So so I I understand what you know the team concept does in, in open source, but the, the organizations that exist today, you know, just like it's just so incredible. We never expected that it would it would grow to, to you know like my companies we sponsor a lot of um, open source projects especially FreeBSD because we use a great deal of FreeBSD and uh, we have FreeBSD kernel hackers on staff who who basically have have you know written a wildly customized version of FreeBSD to improve our CDN performance and so that we so I, I we we do I think we sponsor Zabbix because we we use a lot of their infrastructure and uh, we also use a great deal more, you know, on that kind of sort of thing. But those are just two that I, I recall. And that's um, the nice part of the BSD licenses; it allows you the flexibility to do that. Exactly. And, uh, Darren Reed's uh, original license, you know, um, I liked it 
but it was good enough for BSD anyway. But Linux, you know, I, I really love Linux now. I, I was an anti-Linux person. I was so snobby. If it didn't wasn't descended from the one true source tree, I wasn't having it. And you know what? I learned my lesson, and I love Linux, and I, I will use Linux. I have uh, like about seventy five computers here in front of you, and and every one of them except one virtual image is running Linux, and the the one virtual image is FreeBSD, but that's only because I was auditing it um, mm. today. But I, you know, I. Every, I wake up every day really eager to, to get going. I, I, I really like my work, and I, I'm, you know, my definition of a hacker wasn't the one that the media turned it into. Mm, it was sure. somebody who was proficient and who was, who was like able to you know, create something from nothing and, and you know, the, the old school hacker. And so, but, you know, I, they also called me the other hacker. And, uh, you know, back then we had a lot of ethics. We there were certain things we wouldn't do. And one was actually make money from what we did. Right. And, you know, I did a lot of things before, you know, um, before the, you know, the first computer laws were passed. And after that, uh, you know, I really didn't do anything except write a stupid article. <laughs> right. Um, and then, you know, I had, yeah, I had all that source and I wasn't doing anything wrong with it. I was studying the mm. kernel because that was the only documentation there was, was the, the source. We're so, so spoiled now, Leonard, with Stack Overflow, right? And back in the day, we oh didn't have those gosh. resources. You know, it's true because I, 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 I admit that I, I search the net like anyone else and I've learned a great deal of things that I had forgotten. Mm-hmm. And it's just I'm, I'm teasing, but I, I I really use it a lot, and I'm really grateful. You know, I the only thing that you know for a while I tried to keep my Wikipedia page accurate, but I must have a lot of people that really hate me because you know they they write a lot of vicious things about my about me and my Wikipedia page. So, um, but I just um you know the I just can't you know thank all the people who helped me, especially the guy who ran the computer underground. Uh, Digest. His name is Jim Thomas. He was a professor at one of the uh, Illinois schools. I can't remember it specifically now, but you know, and he kept them. He, when I was in prison, you know, he was probably the reason why they sent me. I was getting a lot of books to read, so I'm really grateful for like the people who sent me the books, and hopefully, some of the people that did send me those books will will watch your program, and then they'll know that I really, really did appreciate them. <laughs> but that was so long ago. It's you know, I. But you said in 91, right, that, that it happened, but actually it happened in 1989, and they, they kind of kept me, you know, under their thumb. Mm. And But we fought, too, and tried to, to, to win, but um, I was advised to take a plea bargain secretly by somebody who was on the team, and, and that wasn't the that, – that's not what Mitch Kapoor and, and the rest of the EFF wanted. But Leonard, do you, I, do you look back on, you know – early in your career and look at some of the things that uh, were happening with the internet and now look back at them and, and kind of chuckle as to how much this stuff has changed? Yeah, like gopher. <laughs> <laughs> right, guys? Gopher. I mean, why yeah. do we need the World Wide Web? Because everything it's was on gopher. gopher. <laughs> I'm like, jeez. Well, 
It was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not wrong. No. <laughs> no, it's funny though. But yeah, you know, I just go for rock. You know, <laughs> this is the internet has become more than I ever thought it would, mm. and and it's it's become much less than I ever thought it would, because <laughs> you know I, I don't like the idea that you know of spam. I'm very anti-spam, and you know I just you know I, I had to outsource my mail because of the spam and I, I just don't want to have to deal with, you know, getting the latest signatures and, and the antivirus stuff and all that. But I really don't have anything that's uh, susceptible to viruses except for the laptop that we're, we're doing the Skype interview with. And, and I have a VMware image of Windows 7 on one, one of my screens over here. And, uh, but I have virus protection, but the best protection is to, um, I have, um, IP tables rules to block mm. all access from that Windows 7, you know, instance to the net. And so everything's fine. It's all under control. And and I'll probably be running Windows 7 for the next 20 years. <laughs> because I, I, you know, Windows 8, we all know about Windows 8, 10, and whatever. It's just yeah, it hopeless. Okay. So there's nothing. Linux has actually saved... Saved, I think, saved all of us from from Microsoft, and you know we have to we have to give Linux that because. Did you ever think you know, you'd see a, 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 a? Did you ever think you'd see a day later where where Linux was inside of Windows today? Oh, that's terrible! You never <laughs> want to run VMware that way. You want to run <laughs> Windows under Linux, not Linux under mm. Windows VMware, because Windows VMware is really scary. Well, not today. Not you don't that even, I would ever use it. But, you don't um, even need. No, VMware. you're right. Yeah, I I run um I run DOS still. I have a bunch of DOS instances on old laptops that I program radios with. Yes, I'm kind of into. I'm a ham radio person too. Oh, there you go, Larry. Right? Yeah, Larry was telling yeah. a similar story. Yeah, Dekb1tnf. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I, 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 let, I I let my license lapse because I don't believe in in licensing the airwaves anymore. Um, but it was a W3 prefix. Because I was from Maryland, so yep. Yep. so I I just wanted to let you know. But I had my general class at age thirteen, oh. and I got my DX DX one hundred at age fourteen, and so I was into ten meters, really. You know, because during the seventies, you know, the the sun was really cooperative. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> so you know, I'm just a geek. I'm sorry. My toys when I was a kid was was basically I, I would disassemble radios and TVs to try to salvage all the parts, and so to build more radios. Exactly, or power supplies because I was always needing power supplies. Because <laughs> it sounds just up. like you, Larry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, this is a 66-node parallel cluster that I built um, originally just to crack passwords. Um, it's running M MPI. Uh, it's not Open MPI. It's MPI CH2, and uh, so, um, but. It, but something evolved in later after 2013 was I started using it as a model for network attacks. So I can simulate pretty interesting network attacks just right here with, with 66 little ARM computers. And uh, it's, uh, they can each generate about 100 megabits. So nice. it's pretty respect, respectable traffic. Um, uh, and it looks for, awesome, for, too. <laughs> yes. Well, it used to be all wireless. I had Wi-Fi dongles in each one. But... You know, the congestion and, and, the, and the fact that consumer home quality um, access points just couldn't handle the packet count. Mm. And it, it would cr even crash even DDWRT. So <laughs> I uh, eventually – and plus, I must have 
wanted to, I had a death wish because I must have created like the worst RF killer machine <laughs> in the world because it, it was there were sixty six little Wi Fi dongles all the you know blasting you know two two some two point four gigahertz yeah. Right, uh, so it's like ah, so so anyway, but I, I got tired of the sh- the crappy performance, so I I put I moved it back to a wired design, and, and as you can see, it, it turned into quite the um, spaghetti. But it, uh, looks, awesome, it looks more impressive. I think it lo- probably looks more impressive with the cables. Yeah, I agree. Well, well, performance is really great. There, there's like when you're running stress tests, you know, like calculating pi through a parallel cluster. It's really you can, the latency is really factor and because now there's no latency it's it's really performing well but the problem is it's pointless because these are one gigahertz arm cpus right arm v7l so they don't have a lot of crunching power but these are four gpus and and that's that's about 1300 gigaflops right there and so i'm that's my next version of the cluster and uh and i'll, I'll be using it to crack passwords Mainly because you know there's only four nodes, but I'll still keep this thing around because if I want to simulate like a DNS attack, oh, you know, I, I should I'd like to plug a project that I have nothing to do with, but but you know what, go look for DNS dist because I'm I'm going to be designing a major you know infrastructure change somewhere based around DNS dist and it's it's such an amazing um um. DNS server that's also a DNS firewall, and, and it has a lot of automatic actions that immediately save your infrastructure, your your, your DNS infrastructure. Um, if you put this in front of, of your, you know, pools of real name servers running, perhaps bind. Um, DNS disk is produced by the same team that made PDNS. Mm-hmm. Um, you should really get into that because if you know, if especially if you have large scale infrastructure or you need to protect critical name servers, put you know, don't buy the stupid, you know, DNS firewalls that you can buy, you know, as part of these appliances, unless they're, unless they're advertised on this program, of course. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Leonard. I don't think there is one, but thank you, though. No, I, no, I had to nice. remember that. So I, I, I did want to slam something that I shouldn't be. But I, I just want to know, you, you really should use DNS disks, even if you just have a small DNS infrastructure, because it's such a great cache. It's amazing. It, it devotes the entire, you know, server's memory to, to the cache, and you can set up pull and you can divert traffic just based on the queries. Um, if you have an abusive query, you know it can filter based on rules, patterns, and as long as you can establish a pattern, you can you know you can really make great use of it. And I have about two or three hundred name servers. I have to, I'm going to put this in front of, and uh, you know it's, it's awesome. I don't mind talking about it because you know it's I don't care if somebody knows I'm running DNS dist. Um, you know, if you want to, to to leverage that against me, then bring it on. <laughs> so, so uh-huh. I, I I'm not challenging anybody though, because I would never do that. Really, I want <laughs> to be known as quite humble and quite. But I've kept a very incognito life after prison. Yeah, we ha- we had to kind of dig to find you, Leonard. I'm not a scene whore. <laughs> I don't attend on the con- conventions. Although I, you can ask Dark Tangent this. I was supposed to be the first keynote speaker for their first DevCon, and my probation officer wouldn't let me. Oh. oh. So so I was in, but I was in I was in living in Menlo Park just outside of Stanford then, and and they, the government didn't want me to to speak, and they were trying to shut me up, but um, but you know I. All the stuff that happens to me, you know, it's it's really um, 
mostly it's helped my career. Mm. Uh, it really has because, you know, I, I, I've had some really great positions in life. I work for some really great companies. And, um, and, and I don't know if I would have been able to, to do that if I hadn't gone through what I did before. But, but I do know that, um, look at, you know, I'm almost, I'm, I'm like a year away from being 60 now. And I never, you know, I never, I didn't start out to do anything that I, I, I'm doing now. You know, um, and and actually, I'd rather be a stonemason right now. <laughs> some days, you know, some I, days I'm right there with you, Leonard. Uh, Leonard. You know, I wanted to mention one last thing. Sure. I have an observatory that I, I built in New Mexico. Um, it's about a hundred miles from where I'm at right now, but it, just look it up on on the net. It's called Top of the World Observatory, and um, I have a like a real you know huge dome and a big scope and and all that, but um. That's why I moved from after 9/11. I was I was right across the street from the the North Tower. I had just I had just left the Millennium Hilton, and um, I was walking around the corner to Starbucks, which was right around the corner, and at the Hilton. And um, and uh, after I got my coffee, um, I, I looked up and you know pieces of rock were coming down. So. I was there that day. I took my own pictures. And so I, I'm not going to get into what happened that day because that's not a topic for here. But just, Leonard, um, I, I think we could listen to you talk about uh, – tell stories and, and talk about technology for like hours. I, I can see the expressions on our co-host faces and they're just like enthralled and engaged with everything that you're saying. And I just – I can't thank you enough for, for coming on the show. I, I – very I do happy have so to much. Be yeah, I, I would love to have me, you back. I uh, I know you don't funny. like uh, you know going to some of the conferences, but uh, you know if you do, I, I can guarantee we'll welcome you with uh, you know open arms and uh, just Thank listen you. as we did tonight. Um, no, I don't want to waste anyone else's time. <laughs> <laughs> no, certainly not. Uh, so Leonard, I just have five silly questions uh, to okay, ask you. Shoot. There's no right or wrong answer. So uh, the first question is three words to describe yourself. Um, I can use, uh, I, I guess I, I, I can use, um, one word. I'm a hacker. If you were a serial killer, what would be your weapon of choice? Ah, if I was a serial, serial killer, I could, I, I, I could never kill anyone. Um, I believe that actually after speaking with you, Leonard, <laughs> I, I, that is the most genuine answer I've heard for that question. I think in some time, if you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be? I'm sorry, that broke up. If you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be? Hacker. In the popular game of Ask Grabby Grabby, do you prefer to go first or second? Oh, this is like the Kobayashi Maru. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Well, given some oh, of the, two, the other two answers, the I'm other two answers, I mean, change everything. <laughs> I don't want I to be in either of those positions. That's good. That is an acceptable that is, answer. Yes. <laughs> it's cheating. I know. It's cheating. No, that's the Kobayashi no. Maru. <laughs> There's no Leonard, cheating. Leonard, choose two celebrities to be your parents. Oh, man. Charlton Heston and, um, and Catherine Hepburn. Oh, nice. From a, from a more civilized age. Leonard... Thank you so much for appearing on Paul Security Weekly. It was wonderful having you this evening. Thank you for sharing. 
Nice to meet you, and I look forward to seeing you again. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Leonard. With that, Thanks, Leonard. we're going to take a short break and come back with the security Good news. Night, so guys. Thanks, Leonard. Introducing the new DigiCert as the leading provider of high assurance SSL, TLS, and PKI certificates. DigiCert is all about improving security across the web and IoT. DigiCert is committed to helping customers and partners successfully deploy identity, authentication, and encryption solutions. They'll even help you figure out which certificate you need to secure your web domains, apps, devices, and more. Check out the Cert Wizard tool under the SSL tab on digicert.com. The average time between being hacked and realizing you've been hacked is one year. Can you afford to let an intruder roam your network for that long? Can your company weather the fallout when this comes to light? Black Hills Information Security can find the bad guys in your network and train you to do it yourself. Email consulting at blackhillsinfosec.com to find out how a hunt teaming engagement can help you find a persistent threat in your network. Signal Sciences is the industry's first web protection platform that works in any cloud, any container, any platform as a service, and any modern application architecture. The Signal Sciences web protection platform can be deployed in next generation WAF, RASP, or reverse proxy modes, giving customers ultimate flexibility and coverage. Protect your web applications with Signal Sciences web protection platform. Signal Sciences, protecting applications, connecting teams. For more information, check them out at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. Welcome back, everyone, <clears throat> to the security news on uh, Paul's Security Weekly. Takes me a little while to get going. I had to get a little running start there. Uh, check, check out our <laughs> on-demand material, securityweekly.com forward slash on-demand. Lots of great stuff for you. Next week, we will be at Source Boston working on my presentation. I am I'm really excited, really excited. Uh, there, there, there is a hack that I cover like we, we got. It's really lame. Uh, but there's a, a hack, an incident, security incident that I'm doing forensics on, and it's it's so lame. It's so don't I use the term forensics lightly <laughs> because it was so lame. Like you don't even really need to know about. Uh, like if you know how to use strings and uh, uh, virus total, pretty much you can figure out exactly what happened. Um, but it's it's comical nonetheless. Uh, I'll be talking about Docker security next week. At Source Boston, our discount code for the conference is SW75WMKW, and there will be other speakers there aside from myself. No, but I no, would hope. No one else. I would hope. No one wants to go there just to see me. Believe me. So. By the way, the mic's off. The, the mic's off. Good <laughs> Lord, Jeff. <laughs> Sorry, it was a Google Play accident. <laughs> I just want to. Um, Get everyone's uh, feedback. I thought that was an uh, the interview with Leonard Rose was completely epic. Is oh, that man? I thought that, that was, that, awesome. was fan, that was fantastic. Um, you know, I was saying in the break actually, he reminded me uh, of exactly the reason I got into this industry in the in the beginning. Uh, I mean, I do remember compiling the Unix operating system from the source code. Um, in this case, it was a PC version that was. Uh, actually distributed on floppies, so not quite the early mm. version that was a tape. But nonetheless, that's how we used to do things. So uh, it was really cool to talk to him. So awesome. I was watching everyone. Uh, not Kevin, you looked particularly engaged with that interview too. Uh, I, I was floored. I, I felt like uh, uh, I, I was challenged trying to ask a good question. As I just wanted to listen to, to someone speak, uh, particularly with such experience of uh, building the foundations of something I have to use every single day. Right. Uh, I, I, I would just let him talk, man. Like I, it, he made our job easy, right? Like he was yeah. just going. 
And oh yeah, and oh yeah. By the way, I coined the term "secure by default." Like, <laughs> oh, okay. But, uh, one, of the, one of the most interesting things that I I, I got out of that interview was um, uh, Paul when you'd asked him uh, getting into security. You know, what are some some tips? And he responded with hardware, and it's not something you actually hear very often. And it's something that I've seen. There's a knowledge gap about the fundamentals of technology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It works so much in software, but we forget how it's actually made and actually building it. And what that actually means, particularly at the networking level, that's a. I'd so just love to, that's cool. love to pick his brain about Unix and, mm-hmm. and, and Linux too. I mean, when he said he started, when he started using Unix for the first time was before I was born. <laughs> that's it's pretty incredible. It's pretty. Well, you awesome. are a youngster. Thanks, Joff, <laughs> for making me feel young. Again, it, it, yeah. and that I might guess. also be making Josh feel old in the converse. As the oldest member well, of the show, I, I appreciate. It. I appreciate well, that. well, Leonard's got uh, Leonard's got about ten years on me, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> what do we? Uh, what do you want to talk about in the stories this week? I mean, we've got plenty Ooh, of time. Oh, I, Not a lot of stories unless I haven't refreshed in some time. So, well, I, I do want to mention one. Did anybody notice that Twitter um, had a very sudden and massive patch? That went in literally this afternoon. Um, I was hearing something about that, and yeah, uh, yeah well, would it define Jack, patch Jack, though. I Jack read just it. Jack just commented that apparently when you change your password on Twitter, it makes you re-auth all your apps that it's connected to. Yeah, maybe it does now. Never, yeah. yeah, I want to say it didn't do that <laughs> before. Um, so what happened was they were inadvertently logging some passwords in plain text in their log files. They do not believe that any of them were breached. Uh, however, they um, noticed and they took action, uh, it looks like, immediately. And once you got re-authenticated to Twitter, and this was no less than about an hour ago, once you got re-authenticated to Twitter, they actually pu- pushed you to the preferences and uh, requested strongly that you change your password, which is very, very responsible of them. Uh, so um, I hope they also I, encourage I two-factor authentication, too, because that, that helps. I believe they do, but I, I really applaud those actions as a very, very case. responsible way to do things. This, this sounds very similar. Wasn't there a very recent story recently about another company that was inadvertently storing logs? It was, it was GitHub. It was GitHub. Well, it yeah. was GitHub, yeah. yeah. So uh, <laughs> I, I did my uh, due diligence and used my password vaulting application and immediately changed my password to something long and complex and uh, moved on with my day. What, and, what was and it before that? Go, was it capital P password one two three four Joff? So now yeah, you've oh, changed yeah, it. Oh yeah, that's so exactly th- what. It, why? How did you guess? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, you're some kind of you. You work with computers, don't you? <laughs> you're, you're some kind of wizard. That's what it is. <laughs> La- last week uh, on Application Security Weekly, Keith Hoodlet posted uh, the comic is called Commit Strip. And it's a oh, comic yeah. of a guy. One of them yes. was a comic of a guy. And he's like working through the algorithm older, that's forcing an old, him. An older guy, right? Yeah, yeah he's yeah. like, I need an uppercase letter. I need some lowercase letters. I need a, some numbers. And I need a special character. What's a, yeah, what's a special character? Yeah, mm-hmm. so then he's like, capital P, password, one, two, three, four, exclamation point. <laughs> and it says, you've selected a really awesome password. Thanks for that. Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, couldn't we apply some machine learning and AI to our passwords using algorithms to correct, say, correct battery like, staple. you've chosen a really weak password, you dummy. Use password in your password. We have all the well, machine uh, learning uh, and uh, AI. Why don't we use it for that? 
you know, it's it's on that topic. I've had a lot of customers actually do a very, very good job. I want to hear Carlos. Carlos hasn't been on the show in a while. It's so nice to hear your voice, Carlos. Okay, I'll shut up now. Carlos, come on. Hit it. Yeah, I I really do love that comic strip. I actually do check uh, the comic strip at least once a week and sometimes actually post some of those. Yeah, but um, on the subject of passwords, yeah, they suck. Um, I I just use two-factor on anything that supports it. I agree. That's a valid strategy. Carlos, I, w- I'm, I just still want to hear your voice. What else have you been working on? They've made the transition to trusted sec. Are there things that you can talk about that you've been working on? Uh, yeah. Yeah, in general. Uh, I've spent uh, most of my time there just organizing some stuff uh, for research, uh, specifically around internal tooling. I've actually started learning aggressive scripts. I've actually written around 10, 12 of those. And what, what scripts? Uh, aggressive scripts, so sorry for Cabal Strike. Oh, okay, gotcha. Uh, in addition to that, I spent quite a large amount of time with uh, JScript, BibiScript, and BBA writing sandbox detection and um, cradles for uh, firework code. Nice, nice. That's for your, for your payloads, right? Yeah, oh uh, yeah. Yeah, for your payloads that the red team use. I actually... Uh, my team, uh, there we're only three of us. We, we write all of the tooling for the force team, which are the guys that are constantly doing pen tests, and also for the red team and the guys that actually do all of the insert response. I still haven't written an insert response tool. I've uh, been focusing most of, on the red team and stuff. Uh, but yeah, so far it has been fun. It's, that it's, sounds it's, like it's a, good. you know, Carlos. I your your title doesn't do it justice. That sounds like a really cool job, by the way. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a principal consultant. Uh, it's my official title, uh, but I'm the team lead for research, and um, it, it's, it's kind of nice not being referee, HR, mm-hmm. a proxy, pencil pushing most of this stuff. Uh, I do miss the people in my previous job. I miss the team I manage, all 24 of them in total. Um, but at the same time, I like that now I'm doing more technical work. That's awesome. That's and, te- awesome. and technical work that I like. Hey, hey by Carlos. the way, Carlos, thank, thanks for testing out the title for me because um, I'm going to have John give me that title. So I really appreciate it. Make sure it comes with a <laughs> lot more salary too, Jeff. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> so to step back, uh, God, uh, Kevin had some some comments about some of our password stuff in two factor. Yeah, let's get back to that. No, I was just going to make a stupid joke that you should put a WAF in front of it. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so glad you said that. I'm glad, we, I'm glad we went back wow. to that. I'm really glad we I went back to that. Full circle. Uh, my day, I feel so like complete now. Like I can get a good night's sleep uh, because uh, not Kevin has brought WAF into the discussion. Which, I'm, I'm okay, everybody drink. Drinks. He said, "Wow, important." I feel like it's a, it's a part of the what I bring to this show is the ethics and integrity and, and talking about wafts. It's, I I just when I tell people about <laughs> our our waff jokes, they just they get a, a big they, a big they, kick out of they it. They just they just waff for hours and hours. <laughs> wow! <Wow. laughs> Good God! Yeah, God. I had to go there. Go. Larry, save the show, please. Talk about one of your stories, please. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, I'm just oh. laughing so hard. I'm laughing so hard. <laughs> <laughs> Over. Say 
I say, I say that to my wife every time she whack, knocks on the bathroom door. Shut up! I'm laughing so hard. I'm laughing, I'm laughing <laughs> off in here. Oh, it went down fast. Okay, Larry, save us. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying to myself when I'm laughing off. Larry, save us! <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, while you're on fire, you say, Larry, put it out, and he just throws a dynamite stick at you. See that or I pee on you, you know? <sighs> but you can put out fire with dynamite, it's true. Hey, hey Johnny, you better capture that one for the credits. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh. All right. Oh. I little ransomware, Larry. Oh, God, not. <laughs> Do we need more ransomware? Oh God, I'm sick and this, tired of ransomware. But this is this is a pretty awesome yeah. way to ransomware through ILO. Yeah, because you know if you think about you know the the, the relative shit show that is ILO and you know, <laughs> relative <laughs> yeah the relative shit show. Um, it's a security shit show. I I, yeah. I I think for managing systems. Panel, correct me if I'm wrong. It wasn't half bad. Oh, I mean, well, it, it, it all depends. Days, on, it all depends on who's managing your systems. Depends on the version. <laughs> that's right. How, where did you delegate your management to? Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, that's the question. Yeah, exactly. So, what do they do? Change the password on on ILO and shut down the operating system? <sighs> well, or something? so all sorts of things. The big one is that they start doing. They put up uh, the banner that's saying, "Hey, you know, you want access to your stuff." Um, we're going to encrypt all of your disks. So uh, they gain access to ILO. They enable a login security banner to put their notification on that mm -hmm. stuff has been happened. They remote, re uh, they mount a remote ISO mm -hmm. with the uh, media manager. They reboot the affected server, and then uh, it mounts via the ISO, and then mm -hmm. it encrypts the drive. Their ISO, whatever they're booting on the ISO encrypts the drive. Drive. Yep server reboots uh it will no longer be able to boot and uh say no no boot device found and uh, can you see people in there with soldering irons and stuff and wire cutters trying to like cut the ILO board out of the system <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you jumper this pin it bypasses the iso boot functionality yep yeah i i, I love at uh the uh one of the the sort of taglines in the article is hb ILO 4 should never be connected directly to the internet no shit really yeah yep and uh, the folks that have been victimized by this are saying that they're demanding two bitcoins to gain access to the drives again. Depends on how many drives you have. That could be costly. Yep. And now, two more than likely, huh? having worked 11 years of my life at Hewlett Packard and dealing with ILO on a day-to-day -day basis, didn't they patch properly their ILO cards? And that's how they run some work out there. So if they would have properly patched their stuff, they would have been hit. You'd think. You'd think. Or th <clears throat> they just put it on the internet and, and failed to choose a good password. I mean, I guess there's a lot of ways. Um, yeah, because normally when you buy a ProLine server, uh, in the case of ProLine, it's not the C-series, the uh, Blade servers. You actually, when you pull out the server, you have a tag that you pull out with the uh, a very strong random uh case and special character password already burned in into each one of those. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the things I've seen is that a lot of customers actually do not patch uh, the ILO card itself because you actually have to reboot the server to be able to patch it with a, a firmware update uh, ISO image that HP provides that you boot up the server with that and it will patch all of the firmware on your machine including the ILO. 
other people simply don't know that HP offers for free the management console if you have a contract to be able to patch everything. It's uh, ILOs, IDRAX, uh, Supermicro, um, Offband. Those are some of the best targets I've seen out there because people simply don't patch those. I still see the, uh, the one where you send an empty password string over and it actually authenticates you and that's a very old vulnerability that has been patched now for over two, three years. And I've seen it in banks, I've seen it in um, pharmaceuticals, I've seen it in many places. Yeah, I mean, this is one case where uh, you can use segmentation to greatly limit your risk. I mean, when, I mean, even when I was working at the university many moons ago, <clears throat> there was, I think it was called Rilo back then actually. And <clears throat> we just put it on a different network. That network through the firewall would only, only the administrator workstations would have access to that network. Uh, and if they were to VPN in, we would drop them only in, administrators were in a separate group. Mm -hmm. When administrators VPN in, so. they were the only ones that ended up in in that group and could access, because that would be the likely scenario when you need to access that management console is... If something is just horribly wrong and down, like then you need to VPN and get into that so you can, you know, kick the server over or you know boot from an ISO and, and rebuild it or whatever. Yeah, in fact, you can actually even integrate the ILOs. I, I think after version three and above, you can actually integrate that into LDAP, so you can actually integrate it into Active Directory, mm. where you can actually have even more control. Mm. It is just like any other management plane that you have uh, in your environment. If you don't secure it properly, it's going to get abused. Uh, same thing with your router, your switches. If you leave SSH open and you leave SSH to the internet, they're going to be abused. If you leave Telnet, they're going to be abused. If you leave the web interface out to the internet, they're going to be abused. Uh, and I think the same thing happens with uh, this type of off-band uh, management interface. If you leave it connected into a network where everybody has access, it's going to get abused. And you have to physically cable it into that network? At least when I yes. did it, it, it right? it's, it's actually a separate port. Yeah. With the exception yeah. of the C class, which is the uh, Blade servers, all of the Blade servers actually communicate to one single management inter, uh, module, and then you just cable inside of, uh, into that module itself. And you connect to that module, and you can see all of the individual Blade servers and then select each one of those. Wow. Yeah, so in, in, in that, my that time... Another and, uh, problem. That management console that you get in your machine actually uses Java. So if you haven't patched in a long time, you're probably going to find Java 1.5, 1 1.6 in mm -hmm. the environment. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was going to say, um, you know, in my time uh, back in the university days as well, Paul, uh, you know, I, I actually managed and administrated a separate network called the out-of-band network, and it was the same thing. You, you, you could physically get connect to it, connected to it, but you couldn't do a plum. Um, and um, we didn't even have a VPN into it. All the ILO interfaces dropped into out of band and uh, it was just a flat VLAN. And if you wanted a station on it, uh, you had to physically cable it up to your office. Gotcha. So you made people drive into the office to get access to that job. You're mean. Well, just, <laughs> just to the out of band though, right? right. People, can do, people can do things in band a tremendous amount of time, but if they're you know completely screwed up and everything's foobard, that's when you need to get to ILO. Well, drive into the office. <laughs> so, yeah, you're so mean. I was mean, 
But rightfully so. So, like, my point was, like, you wonder how people, like, you have to run a physical cable to this subsystem. And so people are just running physical cables and just sticking it on the network, on the internet, maybe, in some cases. Like, that's that's bad. Yeah, yeah. I remember doing a presentation at DerbyCon on DNS Recon, what I did. The, um, I guess, who was it? I think it was Comcast. Uh, and I did a NSEC walk uh, to demo that feature of DNS Recon. And it actually brought all of their ILOs of all of their servers out in the output uh, when, while I was walking the, um, the zone. And I remember a lot of them were internal networks and then one of those uh, was actually resolving to an external IP uh, from among 20, 30, or 40 of those that uh, I saw in the uh, zone walk. Wow. Uh, let's see. In stories that I feel like we've covered before, Volkswagen cars are open to remote hacking. Wasn't there... I feel like we've talked about this before, right? Uh, Hasn't Volkswagen it was, had issues? It may have been Mercedes. No, it was Volkswagen. Others. Oh, it was, maybe it was Jeep? I don't know. Jeep. <clears throat> um, there's been others that have been exposed to uh, car hacking for sure. Uh, I feel like we've talked about it before too, but... Hey, you know, uh, it's another day, another vulnerability. What are we going to do, right? Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, guess what happens when you put a car on the internet? Yeah. Yeah. Probably. The car drives really fast. (laughs) (laughs) I guess they had some kind of wireless interface in the cars that uh, they were connecting to. And then they got a certain amount of control over it. Um, they, they got like a step away from getting a hold of, uh, of compromising the CAN bus and then they decided to stop to avoid uh, getting sued or reported for criminal activity. They didn't want v- VW to decide to press charges on them for what they were doing. So they, they stopped short of, of jumping, I guess, into the, to the CAN bus and taking that over remotely. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, they were saying that they could access portions of the, the CAN bus um for uh, it's they say IVI, which is probably in vehicle, not entertainment, in vehicle something or other, um, which they could control the central screen, speakers, and microphone. But now they said they they fixed ones like coming off the assembly line, but it's not an over the air fix. It's a physical recall. So there oh, are still a number of vehicles nice. on the road with this vulnerability. Yep. So you know who they you know who they should talk to. They, they they should talk to Elon Musk because he does over the air fixes. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. It's probably something mm-hmm. like uh, so. <laughs> what, looking at um, what they call run for the exploit, it uh, looks like a QNX uh, uh, system underneath, and they're probably hesitant, if not don't have the capability to run uh, QNX major distribution updates uh, over over the air. Over the air. I mean, uh, it's still pretty small size wise update, I would yep. imagine, but. Interesting. Yep. Uh, Facebook fired an engineer accused of stalking women. Hooray! I, I, yeah, hooray, yeah. for sure. But, y- you know, what's yeah. what's interesting, too, is there's a couple of stories in here where, uh, you know, it's, it's social media and privacy related, and it's like things that you, I guess, every day don't really consider about the state of uh, privacy surrounding your data. And doing the threat modeling on that, I think some of the stories this week kind of was like, 
well, yeah, like I can, you know, put stuff on on social media and, you know, it's out there and maybe one of those threats is, oh, someone that works for that company is going to decide to, uh, you know, violate policies and laws and use that data in a way that is unlawful. And in this case, downright creepy. Uh, I, you know, I'm not sure that cross, I mean, it may cross our minds as security professionals, but I don't think that it comes close to crossing the minds of uh, people who aren't in technology that one of the fears they should have about putting anything online is that someone that works for the company could be some kind of insight. We know that is insider threat. Yep. Yep. And, uh, you know, spe- you know I just, I don't have the stories in there, but speaking of uh, uh, Facebook, uh, there are two things that sort of have come out this week um, that uh, one, they're starting their own dating site. Oh, they're really? They're starting their own dating with That's, Facebook. Not, yeah. for, not for hookups, but for long-term relationships, according to Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, and then the second one is that... How, uh, but how are they going to control that? Like, mm, what are they? they Facebook lie detector. Are yeah. you, well, are, are uh, you uh, in uh, it for the may, quickie one-night stand, or are you in it for the long relationship? May, maybe they'll do some data analytics from Cambridge Analytica. <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> right? But wait, no. Actually, they went out of business, they, and they filed for bankruptcy. And Twitter was reported as having sent data to Cambridge Analytica and then kind of downplayed it. Yep. So, Larry, it's, it's interesting you bring that up. Is, uh, the story I put in there is that they didn't go out of business. They actually just renamed themselves. What? Now, they're now yeah, known they as Cambridge Analytica. <sighs> they're known as yeah. what? So Cambridge Analytica went out of business but just respawned as a different company. Yeah. Emer Data? Emer Data. Emer Data. MR Data. There you go. Just put a WAF in front of it. It'll be good. That's what you need. Oh, you can really boil down any problem we talk about on this show. You know, it could be ransomware, it could be code execution, it could be you know insider threat modeling. <laughs> so the Twitter story was the other story where I was like, you don't often consider like, you know, I, I choose a good password and I may have two-factor authentication, which in this case would help you. But you know, I, I want to make sure you know the, the wrong people don't get a hold of my password. To consider that there's a software mistake or vulnerability that your password in clear text is written to a log file probably also not on the forefront of people's brains who are using social media unless you're in in technology uh specifically security have considered that in your threat modeling like i don't trust this site like maybe there's going to be a bug <clears throat> and my password is going to be in clear text before it gets encrypted yep. and from everything they reported they were encrypting it in the right way using bcrypt and the the, the you know kind of standards that that we have for storing data or password. Well, I mean, you know, you see, you see that a lot, right? Every everything, you know, everybody uh, at at a well-run company has the right intent. It just takes one little slip up somewhere uh, for these kinds of things to happen. And and I think this is uh, it sort of speaks to the value of of password vaulting, and it speaks to the value of you know just reminding yourself as a user, um, certainly if you're a security professional, you're aware of this, that, you know, any password you enter uh, is going to be stored somewhere and it may well end up being stored in a, in a format that's readable and you just need to keep that in your, in your mind at all times. Um, I want to talk about, uh, I'm not ready for our, our off-topic story of the week, Larry, which you, you may, uh, <laughs> oh, my story number seven it's actually what I consider our off-topic okay. story of the week. Okay. I got distracted there looking at it, but uh, um, <coughs> number number four for yes, me, it was pretty. I haven't I haven't looked at looked at it, <coughs> but um, yeah, it's not actually really surprising. <coughs> um, 
because they uh, when when crap ca- crack came out for Wi-Fi uh, attacks against WPA2 uh, and, and such the uh, the the rekeying based attack, uh, I'm not really surprised uh, because everything is vulnerable unless it was patched. And how often do you think medical devices get patched? Never. About as often as ILO. About as often, or I, I, yeah, less We're often right. than ILO. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so really, not, yeah, really not surprised. Uh, it affected the protocol at its core, um, and if you don't patch it, if you don't provide any updates to it, of course, it's going to be vulnerable. But so I'm really not surprised. But um, y- yeah, I think it underscores the problem we have today in security and in in being able to provide a level of security for IoT devices. It's really hard to like have backups and have this repeatable workflow. Like when I think about if you manage servers in the cloud or you're in a DevOps environment, right? Like you can easily build virtual instances of everything and have a clean pipeline where you push stuff out and if it has a bug, I'll just push another version out and and have that feedback loop in there. I think that's much easier to accomplish in traditional IT operations and in software when we get to the IoT device side, I mean, we even see it, you know, anywhere you'll have IoT deployed, in our studio, in my home, in a hospital, or in an industrial control system, like, there's a device, and there's only one device that we use to shoot x-rays or MRIs or monitor temperature on that thing. Like, there's yeah, not, it's like, a on virtual the- instance where I can go, oh, yeah, that one's crappy. Here, have another one. Oh, if that doesn't work, switch back, and then you know, be really agile and flexible like that. Like that's so hard when it comes to IoT. And I feel like that in this, especially in a medical device scenario, you can't like, not every hospital is going to be able to afford. Well, yeah, you've got a a fleet of hundreds of IV pumps. And by the way, you've got like a second version, a copy of all those. And we're swapping back and forth between versions because then it's like, well, which version am I supposed to be using? And then the the money, the capital it takes to have all that because it has to be a physical device attached to something. And oh, by the way, you've got to maintain all these hundreds of servers and that you know which takes priority and which becomes low low right. priority now there there are iot uh and embedded designs that uh have been theorized i don't if and people know of them in practice please point them out where like you're essentially using uh containerization microservices or even virtualization on in on top of the processor architecture for the embedded device mm. in which case you could accomplish that i just don't see i don't see that being the standard yet i think it's really cool to talk about mm-hmm. that but I don't think it's you know uh, a reality well, today in, in a lot I, of environments. I think it's. I was gonna say I think it. I think it's a potential future that could offer some of these um, some of these vendors an out because if they if they can do app level virtualization, they may may be able to get to a level that uh, of um, DevOps implementation deployment, if you like. That's that's yeah. more uh, agile, right? Um, and and that's actually going to be very very important in the space we're talking about, the IoT space, because. Let's face it. Honestly, it's been a complete utter disaster uh, today. For sure. Right. But I, I know not Kevin's got a solution. <laughs> yeah, he does. Bring the in WAF. the not Kevin. Think about that. Yeah, now, now, Kevin, could you containerize your WAF or something like that? Would that work? Could. Yeah. Uh, you can think about <laughs> a WAF built in Docker, which is nonstop. And then you no, put a WAF in front of that. A really interesting point, particularly about IoT, whether you talk about as embedded hardware or even medical technologies, uh, there is a rush to market. Uh, these, these, these designs are not that 
that they will Another they're not thought out is that they're trying to get out before a competitor does. Sure. And I'm sure security gets sacrificed quite often uh, than not when you're trying to get the newest widget out the door and worry about how to update it later. And then it turns out, oh, wait, we can't do over-the-air updates now or some effect. It's, mm-hmm. now, hopefully yeah, this will start to weed out as consumers start to realize uh, you know, if you buy something like this, uh, it'll put you at harm, but it, it's up to you know, everyone listening to the show to make sure that message resonates. And these devices are insecure by design. Uh, they have to be uh, updated, and the vendors have to actually push out these patches. Otherwise, we're going to be left with a whole bunch of junk where that's just going to harm us at the end of the day. Carlos? And, and also cost. They're competing against very cheap devices from China. And now you're mm-hmm. offering one where you have the R&D to make sure that that system's reliable, probably have two different firmware. So if a firmware update fails, now you can run the uh, previous firmware update. That means more RAM. That means more um, uh, space for that firmware. That means more testing. Mm-hmm. That means uh, better designers, better quality of components. More QC has to go into the process. So all of that amounts to a lot of cost that makes you less competitive. Then mm-hmm. when you go into the medical space, now you have certification from all of the different organizations and that whatever you do, if it fails, it kills the, the, the uh, patient. It may kill the person, it really harm the patient, depending on the device, or it may cost a lot of thousands of dollars to repair if you brick uh, right. MRI machine. So. So, so there's a lot of complexity. I don't envy an IoT developer, right? Because there's there's a lot of factors inside of there, both engineering wise plus market wise, that Call they have it. to deal with. But there there should be um, kind of like a base standard. A, 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 um, uh, I would say kind of like a starting point for them to go, uh, which is at least provide the option of updates and be sure to publish updates. Many vendors actually don't simply just come out with a version, they come out with a new version and the older version of the hardware, they're like, we're not updating anymore. Uh, Carlos, have you seen the new uh, Azure Sphere architecture from Microsoft or or anyone else on the the show tonight? I've been hearing about it and it looks very nice from the management point of view. Uh, All the data that you get that can set up it actually simplifies everything via APIs for you to be able to manage IoT devices and to build your own IoT devices and kind of hook into it. But at the same time, having gone through the experience of smart things and having everything cloud connected and yeah. knowing all of the pains of when there's a hiccup in the cloud, when there's a hiccup in my connection, um, where some somebody messes up something in the cloud because of their agile development cycle, of keep pushing new versions mm-hmm. out, uh, that kind of scares me a bit. Well, I think that uh, I've looked uh, briefly at the architecture for for from Microsoft on uh, Azure Sphere, which is their new architecture to support a secure IoT environment. And certainly, there is a cloud component. Their hardware architecture, in the way code gets loaded, looks to be pretty sound. Uh, we've actually reached out to Microsoft to get someone on the show. Oh. Uh, to talk about it because I, I was impressed on what I, I've seen so far uh, and I, I want to learn more and I feel like we're not going to get a good feel about what you know what's going on there what what they're doing with this project and until we get someone on the show to talk about it so I'm super excited uh, is that what that smell is it is and you know we're making progress <laughs> on that front 
And I, I do have to say, Microsoft has been fantastic about having you know people on the show talking publicly about uh, their technology and efforts. So I'm I'm pretty I'm really confident that that someone will come on to talk about it. And you know, it's a good thing. I, I think uh, on paper right now it looks like they've got a really great solution that will help secure the IoT landscape. Uh, and you know, if we can help bring that to the security community and, and get it out there, that that's a good thing. So I really do like the new Microsoft. They're a lot more mm. open, um, especially around Azure. I, I, I don't know if mm. have you seen how, how much stuff they keep pushing out in Azure, uh, spe uh, specifically around their security center um, option for your cloud environment. You, you install security center, automatically starts using threat intelligence data to say, hey, this account that you're using here in Azure has been it, it, it has been known that it was compromised and the password hash matches the password uh, from the compromised data from this known breach or this several known breaches. Um, there's the OMS component where you can, it's kind of like Elk. You can bring all of your logs into that environment inside of the cloud and actually just process all of your logs and set up alerts. So Microsoft, in, in terms of the cloud in Azure, there have been really putting some very nice uh, security offerings uh, Carlos, to complement Azure. Have you heard that Microsoft has made some uh, significant like internal changes to their development teams uh, and has split some teams, moved a bunch of people to, to the Azure team? Uh, have you heard that as well? It depends. Uh, it, Microsoft is a bit more united, but it's still a series of fiefdoms inside of Microsoft. But now they're working a bit more together. Um, let's say I have friends on several teams over there. Uh, some like the teams that they're working on. Others hate the teams that they're working on, uh, depending on how stuff has changed. At least everybody that I know that works in Azure actually likes it a lot. They like how it's organized. They like how they're working. Um, I, you cannot say the same thing for the Windows team. Um, many of them are not too happy uh, with changes. Uh, I haven't talked with them after the recent series of changes. Um, but when you look at Microsoft, they're bringing in now more money from the cloud and services. Their main focus is on services and on the cloud. And you can see it where, uh, where Satya in his recent presentations he hasn't mentioned Windows or mentioned Windows at the platform. Almost everything has been around services in Azure. So those teams are getting that attention. They're going to be getting the more funding and those are the places that most developers uh, will want to move, just like any organization uh, that generates products. Whatever product is the new hotness, the new hot thing, that is where you're going to see people kind of gravitate to and try to be there. Uh, both professionally and for their own enjoyment. Like, hey, I want to feel that I'm contributing to the organization. I want to feel that I'm contributing to uh, our mission. Mm. Um, <clears throat> Larry, more stories? Yeah, what else we got here? Raw decoder? Yeah, so what's uh, well, weird that how that went because <clears throat> I actually thought I updated that and apparently it messed up. Uh, apparently, there's a uh, effectively uh, uninitial uninitialized memory to remote code execution in 7-zip <clears throat> uh, in the way 7-zip uh, uh, processes uh, some of the, the files. <coughs> um, and it's more 
not so much about um, uh, 7-Zip itself. It's um, about the way you're decoding uh, .rar files because mm-hmm. there can be compression com- uh, com- there as well. Um, so they we- use 7-Zip compression, but inside the <coughs> RAR. RAR file, it doesn't have like a dot. Seven zip, seven zip, seven z yep. yep. uh, extension on it. Exactly. So yeah, you can do a dot rar with seven zip um, inside without necessarily having the extension. So yeah, it's um, interesting because you know we find start finding more and more that you know folks are using alternative compression methodologies as opposed to zip, um, especially you know when we start talking about some pretty obscure ish tools that we end up using in our industry with, uh, <laughs> with something like seven zip. For sure. Uh, I didn't also really... 7-SIP uh, I know that several Windows admins actually don't like it that much uh, you know that in, in Windows you have uh, every time you download a file from Outlook you download from the web it actually adds a tag to the file that says hey this file came from the internet it's not secure and if you have contact like DLL scripts and all that stuff when you decompress those with Windows Explorer it will actually re- keep that tag on all of the content of the compressed file. Windows 7-SIP does not honor that. 7-SIP uh, doesn't honor that. So when you decompress with 7-SIP, it actually remove. Uh, it doesn't put that tag on all of the dangerous files. So all of a sudden, mm-hmm. you can just double-click on a J script, double-click on a BB script, HGA file, and it will actually execute. It is no longer marked as uh, blocked by the system. Interesting. I don't really have anything else. I mean, those are really oh, uh, were the highlights Ke- Kevin. for me. Kevin. Kevin. Domain fronting. Well, Kevin has a job. I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, this is uh, Kevin. Don't I, be fronting. And if you're going to be fronting, certainly don't use a WAF. Well, no, you got to front with a WAF. <laughs> don't be WAF. You got to front it with a WAF. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the the story we're referring to is that uh, Signal, the the end to end encrypted application that we all know has been circumventing uh, country-based censorship by utilizing content distribution networks like Google Apps Engine, and now after they were kicked off of that, now Amazon. And uh, by utilizing a CDN, they effectively allow Signal to run in countries that clamp down or do not allow end-to-end encryption tools like Signal to be used, obviously. Uh, So by hiding themselves, if you will, within Amazon, uh, it's very challenging to say their users of the country can't use Amazon, hence domain fronting being the term. Amazon is now kicking them out or threatening to do so. Uh, so that the story is that Signal in itself uh, uh, being really not just an end-to-end encryption, but also an anti-surveillance, anti-censorship tool uh, is challenged in the sense that some of the most vulnerable users, particularly countries that have very heavy or, or oppressive regimes from a surveillance standpoint are, you know, these companies are taking away one of the major ways uh, people are able to organize. It actually surprises me that Amazon is moving to shut them down because from what I've heard <laughs> from various sources is that Amazon is, well, like the Honey Badger, like Honey Badger doesn't care. They mm-hmm. don't care who's using their services and for what because you're paying Amazon to use those services. Mm-hmm. So, Whatever you sub, I mean, if, uh, those of us out there that have submitted uh, a complaint to Amazon because someone's hacking at one of your properties from Amazon, Amazon's like, yeah, whatever. Eh, like the- I've gotten emails from Amazon saying, "Knock it off." 
Oh, okay. Well, that's encouraging. Right. That's right. encouraging. Good. Yeah, Good. and and also I've worked at places where we use, we use Amazon services, and some stuff got abused, and uh, I we, we've gotten our instances flagged, isolated, and Amazon complained to us. Gotcha. Interesting. That's Interesting. good. So there is some oversight. Uh, right, although, yeah. although I would say that sometimes, sometimes that, that that oversight fails. Just yeah. thinking about an environment, which I'll share with you guys off the off the record. Um, yeah, the, the problem with Amazon is the, its complexity. Yeah, yeah, it mm. is just way too complex, and they keep adding more stuff and adding and adding and adding uh, every time like, more stuff to it. Um, I, I guess in, in in summation of the of this article, knowing the the listeners of our show, if there's somebody out there that can help signal with this problem, I highly implore you to reach out to them. So, uh, but I wonder what it will what it will do so to some of the other things that we do as an industry. Like leveraging Amazon's quote reputation and their IP space for AWS and that type of stuff to host our various services. We uh, talked about that with uh, Distill Network. Okay. <laughs> Excuse me, in a webcast that we did, and what uh, their founder and uh, chief product officer, I believe, Rami was saying was that uh, what a lot of organizations do and what they recommend is that when there's uh, a increased amount of bot traffic or you know maybe there was a major breach and mm -hmm. people are spraying those passwords around the internet that when it comes from Amazon's infrastructure don't block them but force them to do something like fill out a captcha on your website uh, to yep. specifically kind of call out that behavior coming from Amazon uh, and a captcha is not you know it's not 100% there are it was pointed out actually by Rami uh, that reminded me that you know there are services you can subscribe to that have an SLA that you can feed them your CAPTCHA and mm -hmm. they have people in a different country that are sitting by waiting, filling out the CAPTCHA and giving the response. Uh, so there are ways around it, but it, do, it does help that. And a lot of folks are looking at Amazon's infrastructure going, we're going to force you to do some extra work if you're coming from, if end user web traffic, right. I should say, is coming from Amazon's infrastructure. And maybe it'll force some companies to not route some of that end user traffic through Amazon's infrastructure. Uh, although that that could be a losing battle as Amazon gains more and more infrastructure that people are using. It is all business. They, they they never cared that people were abusing domain fronting. Domain fronting really doesn't have that much of a real life use other than what Signal and other people are are using it for. Uh, for red teamers, it's a blessing because we can do domain yeah. fronting where we're doing phishing, uh, and it works awesome. But any other legitimate uses are very small. Uh, sorry, signal. Um, but why are they changing now? Because it got attention. It is being abused. It's being abused quite heavily. And now they're being forced to fix it because they know that they can be liable. Um, yeah, that was my thought. I was gonna, I was somebody gonna say he complained and gave him heat. Yeah, exactly. And it sounded like dog barking, and then Kevin kind of gets up and looks around. Like, is there well, he <laughs> works. He works at Barkley, so I would imagine <laughs> that, that, that's why that's I was right. curious. Lots of dogs in that. In that he probably, laid, he probably laid out some. I, I let them out. Now is they're that, everywhere. Is that your QA oh, team? Geez. Your product testers that are that's making noise QA in the background? Team, <laughs> 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 they're testing the wafts. They're testing the wafts. 
<laughs> Wait, what what was that tool? Waff woof? <laughs> that is the actual tool. Waff it up. Waff it up. Waff it up. Waff it up, fuzzball. <laughs> Mark, that's from Star Wars, by the way. <laughs> I can't hold it together on this show. Uh, For shit. some reason. It's Joff. Joff is a bad influence. That man, he's terrible. Oh, Laugh it. Laugh it. <laughs> Damn it. What, uh, what, we, what were we even talking about? Something. Oh, so I, I, so where my brain went when we were talking about Amazon's infrastructure was, uh, I believe it was Carrie Roberts gave a technical segment on this show. It was basically like, you know, if you had a script that I think she can you produced open source or made available open source, right? that you could spin up Amazon instances, it would do web application scanning uh, and proxying so you can come from different IP addresses. Yes, I remember this. For like the exact amount you could use for free and then it would close that down and like open up a new one. Yep. Like you wonder why Amazon's not picking up on, because that's not really, uh, they're not making money off that, right? That's abusing their free service. You would think that Amazon would be on top of abuses of their free service. Although as, as Carlos, nope. you know, uh, very astutely pointed out that Amazon's infrastructure is so big that you can kind of hide in the noise because there's mm. so much infrastructure. Yeah. yeah. And also feature protocols. Uh, for example, S3 buckets. They were being abused quite heavily. People were finding all kinds of data on them. Uh, they uh, And Amazon wasn't adding new tooling for you to notice that you were making errors with the S3 buckets. Yep. It was just an API call. It set up uh, defaults that were very dangerous, and all of a sudden, they start getting a lot of heat. And now you have all of this new tooling that will actually warn you when you set up your S3 bucket that stuff may be exposed and it, it might be dangerous. They, for very many years, it was being abused. They knew about it. They didn't add tooling to address that. Started getting into the news, all of a sudden, <laughs> Too People late. were finding projects from DOD and other agencies out in uh, unmanaged S3 buckets. Uh, a, a lot of data, big data breaches happen through S3 buckets, and they're going like, oh, we're getting bad press. Huh? I think we should fix this. Yep. Yep. Well, Agreed. if uh, no one else has anything more, I got. Uh, let's hit the, my the, story's what, got burned the, up like the, 15 minutes the, ago. In the, case uh, you're wondering, the off, to <laughs> the off topic story of the week, and I don't know if that's all that off topic. No, it's not. It's kind of a, a semi on topic uh, story about. It is my story number seven. Yep. Controversial biohacker uh, was found dead in a spa, which I, for some reason that headline catches. There's just so many. Keywords in that headline, yep. and there's a biohacker, uh, and then uh, he was found dead. So that that's kind of in, intriguing. Like the you know analytics security nerdist portion of me is like, well, how did how did he die? Yep. Was there foul play involved? And then you read where it takes place in a spa. I'm like, what what kind of spa <laughs> was this that he was? Roll over, it's incruded. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> like, <laughs> did he did he get wafted to death? <laughs> <laughs> but oh, <laughs> <laughs> roll over it's incruded 
part of the story is that he was a biohacker in a very yeah. outspoken yep. so biohacker. This, I was so controversial this is, one. Yeah, this yeah. is the guy that uh, injected him with himself with quote research material, which was uh, on. Was that like on stage? It was on stage yeah. at a biohacking conference in Texas. I heard about uh, that. Yeah. Where he injected himself with a, uh, a herpes vaccine or, or herpes cure. Uh, which was untested by the FDA and all this type of stuff, and it was very much, you know, oh my God, you just did what? You you injected yourself with untested stuff because apparently this dude, as they said in the article, had herpes. Interesting. Okay. Which is one of those things you Explains never get rid the of. Visit to the spas. <laughs> but uh, you know, potentially, yeah, they, they, it's weird that the way they phrase that he said that he had herpes. Yet he, that means he. He cured. He, he had he cure it in the himself? past, and he injected himself with the stuff, and maybe did he it cure himself. himself? That I don't know. Pretty interesting but, um, science for the win, maybe. But either way, and that was why I was curious about this one. You're like, oh, Aaron Trawick was found dead in a spa. Like, I know he injected himself with like untested drugs for right. herpes. Like, did was he that? die of that? We don't know. Could he have injected himself with other stuff? Also, th- th- there hasn't been a forensic result yet, right? Right. So right. It could have been that he just bucked his head and just drowned inside of the uh, yep. inside of the tank. He was yep. found he, inside of a tank that uh, actually, flotation therapy. Oh, tank. Oh yeah, they did yeah, say that sensory caused, deprivation. Yeah. Right. Yeah, sensory deprivation <laughs> tank. Yeah. yeah. Maybe you just oh, farted okay. a lot in there and like you know, <laughs> ran out of oxygen. <laughs> oh. yeah. You probably have beans. So <laughs> that beans. happens. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Well, that was the semi-off-topic story for this week. Uh, I want to thank uh, our special guest, uh, certainly Leonard Rose, for coming on the yeah. show this evening, uh, and all mm-hmm. of our uh, co-hosts that joined us for this lively discussion, which always ties back to the WAF, and the title of this episode will have something to do with WAF, I can promise. So, yep. not Kevin, thank you for interjecting that. Uh, I hope your QA team is, is, is okay now. They've, they've been let outside to go to the bathroom. They're coming back in now. Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> Uh, so thank you to everyone for listening and watching. Larry, take uh, us out. Now that we're done waffing off, over and out. IT Pro TV, binge-worthy learning for IT teams. Why is it binge-worthy? It's learning presented in an engaging and entertaining talk show format that beats voiceover PowerPoint snooze fests. Watch over 3,300 hours of content in their on-demand library, on your desktop, on the go, or in the comfort of your own living room. IT Pro TV is IT training you and your team actually want to watch, which means a better return on your learning investment. Get started with IT Pro TV for teams by visiting itpro.tv forward slash security weekly and start a seven-day free trial and get 30% off standard or premium IT Pro TV memberships using the code SECWEEKLY30. Today's determined attackers easily bypass even the most advanced network defenses. Trying to ramp up staff to detect their back doors can cost thousands of dollars and take months, even years. With Active Countermeasures AI Hunter, we enable junior analysts to detect even the most advanced back doors in a matter of hours. Sign up for a demo and purchase our product today by visiting activecountermeasures.com forward slash PSW. Active Countermeasures. Make every analyst a hunter. Endgame automates the hunt for both known and never-before-seen adversaries in enterprise networks. Built on unique knowledge on the adversary's tools, techniques, and tactics, Endgame's centrally managed agent prevents, detects, and responds to advanced adversaries in the earliest stages of the kill chain without prior knowledge. Endgame. Automate the hunt.